0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Context matters. Understanding history helps us create the proper analysis for the present. And it is time we use the history of policing in this country to blow up the perception of many today that policing in America just needs a little bit of reform instead of dismantling the whole thing. To help us do that, we are joined this morning uh, for the whole hour, yay, uh, with uh, Nikki Jones, Professor of African American Studies at UC Berkeley. Good morning, Nikki.
1: Good morning, Kat. It's it's wonderful to be here with you. And thank you for that that beautiful introduction and powerful introduction Uh to Black History Month.
0: Thanks. I am so excited I get you for this whole hour. (laughs) Um, uh, Nikki, uh, so let's get into it. Uh, Many, many folks, right, Uh, but especially Black folks, are sitting in uh, compounded trauma from the brutal beating and murder of Tyree Nichols. What was the impact on you when you learned about his murder?
1: I'm reflecting on... um how I felt um, to hear another story. And we know in between the murder of George Floyd and the police killing of Breonna Taylor and, to, and, and today, this moment, that hundreds, thousands of people have been killed by the police. Uh, and I started to, to hear the news of this brutal, violent uh, police killing um, and felt the same set of emotions that always come up. Anger, shock, even though it's, you know, how can we continue to be shocked uh, An outrage. Uh, and for me, this moment was different from summer 2020 in that um, the, slow, the, it, the slow burn of it uh, kind of washed over me. And I had to think in a really intentional way, as I often do, but in a really intentional way about how I was going to respond in this moment and how I was going to hold my students as well. Uh, we had been talking about uh, police violence uh, and in particular, the videos that they've been exposed to. Right? This is what Elizabeth Alexander calls the Trayvon generation. And so they've been saturated with these images of police violence. And then we had this countdown to the release of this, this, this uh, video of the, the brutal beating of, of Tyree Nichols. And so holding their trauma uh, while allowing um, you know, the space within my own mind and body to, to hold that as well. And to allow that to move um, was, um, you know, part of, of of this moment. And I have to tell you that I, when you know, the release of the video, I was really intentional about when and how I would engage with it. And so I spent Saturday morning doing ordinary things, um, picking lemons, right, playing with my uh, little one, preparing a, a roast chicken for later in the day, because I knew I needed. To be in that ordinary, to enjoy the ordinary before I engage with the violence of that video?
0: So I, I told my team, right, at APTP not to watch it. Mm-hmm. I, I made my daughter promise me that she mm-hmm. would watch it. Sorry. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Because, uh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. uh, because, mm-hmm. uh I didn't want that piece of her soul broken just yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just yet. I mean she mm-hmm. grew up right in the work because of what I do, but I just, you know, I, I don't think those videos are for us. Right? Okay? Like that, that, I, I don't I do think they need to be released into the world, but not for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, the the folks that are this is actually gonna lead into my next question. The folks that still think we're making it up, we're being dramatic, it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. uh, the police associations that will, uh, with the, uh, IRB dies down, stand up and defend mm-hmm. these cops. Mm-hmm. That's why yeah. we need the videos. I had to watch it, uh, because I had five interviews lined up, right. The mm-hmm. reporters wanted to know
1: my reaction.
0: Mm-hmm. Why did you
1: feel like you needed to watch it? Mm-hmm. For a similar reason. Um, You know, I've been studying uh, videos of police encounters as part of the work that I do um, for over a decade now. And that started with a a collection of video recordings that were shared with me by a neighborhood resident uh, where I was doing field work in in San Francisco, uh, who wanted me to see um, these encounters. And so, and and what they were like and how meaningful they they were. And so that began my engagement with, with video recordings. And this was a time when law enforcement by and large is really resistant to having uh, uh, dashboard cams and body cams. That really changed dramatically, uh, as we know, after Ferguson. Uh, But I was involved in in a couple of research projects early on in my career, including one that collected video recordings during ride-alongs with law enforcement and conducted interviews uh, with with police officers about how they see the world. And we just published a, a paper uh, on that as well. Uh, and so over the, the years, I feel like I've developed a distinct way of, of knowing and seeing when it comes to these video recordings. And what I think is different about my engagement with the videos is that I'm, I'm centering the experience of the targets of the encounter. So often these videos are used, and especially post-Ferguson, because law enforcement believes that they will tell the truth, quote unquote, about what's happening, right? If only the uh, people could see the world through their eyes and they would understand why it was that, that they were so, so brutal uh, and violent. Uh, and instead, because I know a lot about how police think uh, about the world now, I'm able um, to add to the conversation, I think in a, in a distinct way, um, in a, a unique way, a, a telling, a witnessing from the perspective of the person at the at the at the target at the at the t- who's the target of the encounter, whether that's a nine year old girl in Rochester who gets pepper sprayed and is telling police that she is a child, uh, or, or Tyree Nichols, and so I, I do think that as part of the work that I do, it, it is important for me to engage at least once uh, with the entire collection of videos, so that I am able to do what I feel like I'm 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 called here to do, which is is to teach.
0: How do you hold yourself after, you know, uh, I, I mean, you've watched so many, uh, I've watched so many, the, 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 grief never not comes, the rage never not comes, uh, the trauma never not comes. What's your, you talked about what you did to prepare before you watched it. How did you take care of yourself afterwards? How do yeah. you take care of yourself afterwards?
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm still caring for myself, you know, we'll yeah. tell you that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Um, and I think earlier in my career, I often let things sit and get stuck. Um, and I've learned over the years to to allow myself to feel it and to allow it to move through. Um, and so I'm very conscious of needing to feel it, not to suppress it. Um and than letting it know that it it, it can I can release it, um, and I can let it go, and I can channel the feelings um, that I have, including anger. I think anger, you know, like Audrey Lord's is a very motivating uh, uh, force, uh, and I use that in my writing. And right now I'm working on a on a book on the um, uh, brutal uh, uh, and and routine practices of policing. And this is yet another example. I mean, one one challenge in writing a book like this is that there is often always another event, uh, you know, where you could focus your attention. Um, but I, I found that that focusing and channeling uh, the, the emotion into the work is, is very useful for me. Uh, and then you know, I, I am lucky and honored uh, to be part of a, a department, right now the chair of a department of Black Studies at, at UC Berkeley, uh, where every month is Black History Month, right? Uh, as my colleague, Lee Rayford says, we are the Black Lives Matter department all the time. Uh, and to be, <laughs> the company, right? <laughs> to be in the company, right? To be in the company of my colleagues and my students and our staff uh, is really up, uplifting, right? And it's it's the, the brilliance and, and the creativity uh, of the folks on the, the floor and the community that we built, of which you are a part as well, um, that really- Yay, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> That really uplifts me and reminds me that that we are part of a current, right? In the same way that you said at the top of the introduction, uh, we, there is a, a current and a tradition of which we are a part, to which we are connected, and the work that we're doing in this moment is is is, is it matters. Uh, it's not for naught, uh, and you know we are we are part of that. So that that lifts me up. That reminder um, that I am not the first one. I am not alone. I am not alone in this. Um, and that, you know, as it, well, alongside the, the terror and the trauma is the joy and the beauty of Blackness. So that, that's, that's what I try and keep as a touchstone.
0: One of the things, I, and then I promise we'll get to history talk, but uh, one of the things that just consistently makes me want to put my head through a wall mm-hmm. is the, <clears throat> the level of shock, surprise, I can't believe this happened. Uh, uh, I, I, and I don't understand that, right? Like mm-hmm. at this point, we live in an age, uh, as, as you pointed out, uh, right? Well, I call it the age of Negaporn, right? Where there's mm-hmm. these public mm-hmm. lynchings happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. they're out there. And then, of course, there's our movements, right? We've been in the streets pretty consistently, mm-hmm. from, you know, since 2009, really, mm-hmm. Uh why, why, why do you? Th- what do you think <laughs> is going on with the majority of Americans, where they still just can't get it? Like, I, and I, I guess what I'm really asking is, how ingrained, and how did it get to be so ingrained in the cultural and social fabric of our country that policing is this? institution of safety.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. The good guys.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, there, there are um, layers to the answer yeah, to that question, uh, as you know. One part of it is, is the relationship between whiteness and ignorance, right? Uh, and so, you know, the, the project of, of white supremacy Requires uh, and is accompanied by a kind of ignorance that is not is impenetrable uh, to to facts uh, to uh, the realities and certainly the pain the harm and the trauma of Black people historically that's that's what we've seen um, and of course there are openings there are ruptures and we've we've seen that as well in recent history and certainly summer 2020 was was part of that. Uh, and one of the reasons I think that people were able to absorb that in a way that was different is one, the world seemed to, to have, 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 you know, had freeze in place because of the pandemic. Uh, and so there were more eyes watching both on the street uh, and social media, uh, on television. And they got to witness the thing that people in neighborhoods where the police are always present see every day. They got to see the arbitrary violence of policing they got to see the unrestrained violence of policing police officers uh, uh, spraying pepper spray in people's eyes, shooting rubber bullets in people's faces including uh, journalists and and I think for 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 many people that was the first time that they saw that in a way that could not be contested uh, in their minds. Um, it was a much different kind of policing than they likely receive on a daily basis right because Particularly white people are oriented to believing that the police are there to protect them, particularly middle class uh, white people. They're, 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 they, and in fact, that has been their experience with the police. Um, one of the things we learned from the interviews that we did with uh, police officers, and they were quite explicit about this. This was in their own words, that they think of people in certain parts of the city differently. right? So white, middle class, wealthier uh, places, they think that are populated by quote unquote normal families primetime citizens business owners right good people and then they think of people in the projects again borrowing from the language of officers uh, and people the projects and people in the projects differently right so what they're they're talking about is white space and black space and orienting to people in black space differently and how right they need they believe they need to be more aggressive right they need to show that they're tough they can't um, do the kind of service-oriented policing they do in, in other places, right, because they feel that that will uh, make them be seen as weak, right? This is how police officers think about the work, right? And so they are routinely distributing more aggression and violence to people who live in poor Black neighborhoods, right, and, and distributing protection and, and the benefits of whiteness, right, to uh, people, uh, for example, here in Oakland who live up in the hills. So people have fundamentally different experience of policing. And so even after a moment of summer 2020, right, as we begin to, to move away from that moment, we saw spikes in gun violence. Fear is now activated, right? The return to the status quo, protection, who protects us, the police. And people are, are less concerned about the, the, the kind of violence that's happening uh, in, 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 in poor Black and brown neighborhoods they're primarily concerned that that will expand outside of those neighborhoods and that that they won't be safe, right? Uh, And then they return to the the status quo, imagining for them that the police keep them safe. So they want more police. They want more units, like these elite targeted units, right, that we saw in Memphis. Professor Nikki Jones, talk about...
0: Tyree Nichols not being the exception to the rule. That, in fact, law enforcement killed more people after the 2020 rebellions. Mm-hmm. And these traffic stops, right, are, are the pri- one of the primary ways our people enter the criminal legal system. And once they're there, almost impossible to get out. Mm-hmm. They are also often daily and deadly uh, pathways to violence for black, brown, mm-hmm. and indigenous people.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I often you know, try, try to help people understand that, that policing is a combination of the extraordinary and the ordinary uh, violence. And so when I first heard about the um, brutal beating of, of Tyree Nichols, the first thing that comes to my mind with these officers is that this is not the first time. This is not the first time that this happened. Um, you don't get to officers acting this way, particularly, right, a, a relatively young group of officers uh, who have lived through, just like the rest of us, what happened after the murder of George Floyd. They were trained uh, within the last several years, and this is what they believe policing is, right? Uh, and, and, and and don't you know, when I start reading uh, some of the reporting on this, at least I've read uh, so far two other people report that they had been brutalized uh, by uh, these officers as well, right? And so, and then, you know, more recent reporting shows that there were incidents uh, that for which some of the officers weren't disciplined. uh, And instead officers were uh, affirmed, right, as quote unquote top producers in the department, and so, you know, and we saw this in, 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 in Minneapolis with Derek Chauvin as well, and, and, and policing as an institution will try and set these officers apart from the institution of policing. They will try and say that these are outliers, that this isn't how policing is done. But in fact, this is policing. Violence is at the heart of policing. And we know we have mountains of evidence, right, from pra- patterned and practice investigations any investigation that has been done at the this local, state, or federal level over the last century has documented the routine abuse of policing, particularly against people with the least power in society. So that is part and parcel of, of, of policing, I and mean, people you know, believe that you can somehow reform that out of policing, or you can contain that, you can strain that. Um, but again and again, that belief is, is, is shown to be faulty, to be flawed. Right. That is policing. And that is why people uh, like you know, the both of us have called for other paradigms for thinking about and providing what people think of as safety. Right. Um, but stability uh, and security and wellness right? um, and, and investing in those other institutions, because you know, violence is central to policing. If it's not there, then it, it is not policing.
0: All right, Professor Jones, let's talk about uh, how we got from there to here, right? Mm-hmm. I really do believe that that looking, studying, not looking, studying history is, is how we build appropriate mo- movements in the present, uh, in, in our circles, right, or in activist circles. And, and I think a lot of people, uh, my listeners, right, they, they understand mm. uh that policing was born out of, you know, the calvaries and chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if we get to it, I want to talk about uh, early days of of trying to destroy the building of unions, right? But uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know that people know the specifics. And I'd like you to walk us through the birth of policing in this country. uh, And of course, talk about the Barbados slave codes.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, as I've been studying policing over you know, the last decade, and again, I got into it from the perspective of, of people in the neighborhoods that I was you know, you know, working and studying and, and, and writing about, I began to see that there are two like, fundamentally different ways that people understand policing. Uh, and that goes back to what I've described as, as the, the founding documents of policing, and so there's a, a there's a history of policing that goes back to um, what's called Peel's principles of policing, which served as the foundation for the London Metropolitan Police Department. And if you look in any criminal justice textbook, or you go to a, a course in criminology, uh, they will tell you that these are that, that that's the origins of policing in the United States. That police departments modeled themselves after these principles, which um, uh, espouse ideas about the legitimacy of the police coming from the community. The police are here for the people. Um, the people get sent, give them the power and the, and the authority to do what it is that they do. Uh, and of course, these principles, which were published in the, the 1830s, and then we begin to see modern uh, police departments emerge in the uh, U.S., uh, are published at a time where in the U.S., millions of Black people are enslaved in, in bondage, where there's a system in which the police and other white people uh, are charged with uh, constraining and policing the freedom of Black people, right? So that they are snatching Black people up and returning them or con- con- consigning them to, to, to slavery. Uh, and so the, the kind of mainstream story of policing goes back to that, that history. But even if we look, you know, follow that, that line, we see that policing as an institution was always about uh, policing. Uh, 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 labor strikes, as you said, uh, policing uh, the poor, policing outsiders, and, and ultimately protecting the, the property and the, um, uh, and, uh, and the interests of, of, of an elite class. Um, and over the course of American history, you know, policing in, in the U.S., there's been a constant effort to professionalize the police, uh, and the federal government has been involved in this uh, f- from very early on. Uh, we saw that expand after the uprisings of the 1960s uh, and the Kerner Report, right, which documented much of what we, we, we have seen in, in more recent reports about uh, policing uh, and documented the way in which the police maintain, uh, serve to maintain Uh, two nations, one black, one white, uh, and maintain racial inequality. And what we saw after that moment was a deep investment in the professionalization, so-called professionalization of policing. Uh, But what that really did was provide uh, police officers and and, and police departments across the country with more resources, uh, better uh, weapons, and a a, a curriculum that, that institutionalized some of the more tacit beliefs, racist beliefs uh, about people, so that that they became uh, part of the curriculum and are reflected, for example, when I'm doing interviews with officers and they're telling me that you have to treat people in different places differently. They only share that because they think that it is a form of expertise um, that they need to know and and I need to know. If they thought it was wrong or racist, they probably wouldn't tell the researcher, right? Uh, And so, but that... that, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right? Uh, and so, so, but that strand goes all the way back, right, to, to that, uh, that, that early and the history of policing. They can't be racist because they're professionals. And if they are racist, it's unconscious. They're not doing it on purpose. They don't, they don't even know that they're racist, right? So there's that strand of, of the professionalization of policing. Um, what we know, right, uh, and what, what many other folks know because of our socialization uh, and the knowledge that the, and wisdom that we gain through experience that there's always been a project of racial control at the heart of policing. And you also see this in the in the practices of uh, policing. And this other founding document, as I describe it, is the Barbados Slave Codes, right? which again, is is created, right out of out of thin air to control, uh, contain, destroy, uh, punish the bodies of enslaved Black people, right, to serve the interests of the plantation class, right, and, and to serve the interests of empire. Uh, and so those, those codes essentially are, are, are copied and pasted into the, the documents of, of, of art, what becomes, you know, the nation, uh, and inform the practices of policing uh, and punishment of Black people uh, both during slavery and, and post emancipation, uh, and and what we see is that these codes can then adapt; they can evolve, uh, but they always serve the interests of power, and they always serve the project of white supremacy, uh, and they position black people as 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 always suspect, whether or not they're suspects, right? Uh, and and encourages a, both a formal policing, institutionalized policing, policing with a capital P right? And the informal policing, right? They're always watching the hyper surveillance of Black people, presuming Black people to be always out of place, right? Uh, or, or belonging in a particular place. Uh, and so that strand of racial control is also part of policing. Uh, and so to go back to what you said about people constantly being befuddled, you know, one piece of that is that they, they only know this one history of, of policing. They don't, see it as a project that emerged uh, out of a a deep desire, again, clearly stated by people at the time, right? A dual system of justice, right? A deep desire for racial control and keeping Black people in place, and fundamentally an institution that is built on the idea that Black people are outside of humanity, right? And not deserving of the obligations of humanity. Uh, And certainly when we see this kind of brutality we see that an institution has trained, on top of the socialization that all of us get, right? We have to deprogram, deprogram ourselves from, right? Has trained a group of Black officers, right? To see other Black people as outside the obligations of human decency and humanity. And that's the institution of policing. And that's a lot, uh, you know, that's a history that's hard for, for people to hold in their heads at the same time. Right. And, and it is exactly why it has proven um, so difficult to, quote, unquote, reform policing. Uh, it
0: is 8.36 in the morning here on Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're in conversation with Nikki Jones, professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley. Nikki, I actually want to go back a little bit to, to the Kerner Report Uh, Mm -hmm. and and its significance because right so they they, the the researchers went all over the country they came back with this information they didn't suggest flood the community with law enforcement
1: Mm -hmm.
0: they suggested addressing this right Mm -hmm. Uh, before Mm -hmm. there were significant issues and Mm -hmm. they were so clear as you pointed out that police were going to be the ones to exacerbate the tensions mm-hmm. that were already there talk about the federal government choosing to do exactly the opposite
1: mm-hmm. and its
0: impact on
1: black folks mm-hmm. uh, one of my yeah yeah you know one of my you know may say odd to say favorite uh, quotes but one of the quotes that i often come back to to the kerner report and this is not a, b- a report that's published by a radical group of folks right <laughs> that's not right? a <laughs> <the> report <laughs> at the time right uh, and one of the quotes is that what black American wh- what white Americans don't know but black Americans will never forget is that white so- white, so- white society created the ghetto maintains the ghetto uh, and you know to uh, connected to that profits off of um, the ghetto uh, and so this, deep understanding uh, of the way that white America and cities in particular responded to the migration of black people, um segregated black people, ghettoized uh, black people, and understanding the role of policing and maintaining those boundaries. to this day, one of the places where we see the most intense policing is along these boundaries, right? Uh, you know, so so still doing the work of maintaining uh, these these racial uh, boundaries. And so, what they understood was that the problem of policing would not be solved within, you know, as I've said before, the paradigm of policing that it would require large-scale, you know, societal investments. Now, you have a law and order president coming into uh, power, uh, at, you know, on the the heels of this report being published. Uh, you have the activation of federal government uh, agencies, uh, the law enforcement. An administration program uh, that begins to see a lot more funding, even the researchers that are involved uh, in the, the, the work of collecting um, testimony and providing testimony uh, who saw firsthand and heard firsthand how policing operated uh, were shifted to a more, quote unquote, scientific approach to policing. Right, and part, you know, my hunch is because that's where the money is, and so you know, part of what we see post-Kerner report is not only the deep investment in policing, but it's the deep investment in, in criminology and and criminal justice administration. Uh, you see the pro these programs, uh, which have been seen as a quote unquote solution to the the problem of policing, even before this period, you see them proliferate all across the country, and so you have. You know, people who are making money uh, and getting trained and getting certificates and and, and all of this becoming professionals and quote unquote experts in the project of policing. And that has a real consequence because it legitimizes the kinds of quote unquote innovations that come to follow uh, the the Kerner Report and the research that's done in the 70s and and 80s. Uh, And so by the time we hit um, the war on drugs and the crack epidemic, all of these different Approaches that have the 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 kind of the 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 mark of of you know quote unquote evidence based or a building evidence based uh, are introduced with and nothing in between right just you know ideas that that percolate and the academy is on the hook for this too right uh, universities professors research are on the hook for this right so so they are also participating in the project of per, quote unquote perfecting policing uh, and then experimenting. In neighborhoods. and neighborhoods. And so you know you can think of, of this, this elite unit and uh, hotspot policing and targeted policing. And, and certainly, I don't know that the people who developed it, I do believe that they imagined it as a, as a progressive form of policing at the time. And yet we see what police culture does to, to any innovation. To any technology, right? It is just consumed, subsumed uh, to the project that, that's connected to its original history, right? Containment control. Um, under, you know, seeing people as across the line of us and them, seeing the good guys and the bad guys. How do you control the bad guys? How do you get them off the street? And, and officers become much more skilled at that now, I think, than at any time in history, and they have more resources to do so. Uh, and so that, that strand also comes out of, of the, the Kerner report. But certainly, you know, one of the things that, that you know, uh, uh, took that off track, off a track of societal investment was the politics of the moment and that shift to law and order politics that then evolved into a tough on crime politics that um, was embraced by both political parties. And we only have a two party system. Uh, and so then that introduced this, this era of, of uh, you know, tough on crime, broken windows policing from which we are still recovering, right? We are just beginning to recognize uh, the harm that this kind of policing does, although people at the time told us, warned us, right? Um, but, but by and large, people are just coming to understand um, the harms that accompany these kinds of, of policing practices. Professor Jones, I've got about uh, ten minutes left with
0: you, so I, I want to uh, jump to this question because mm-hmm. you have a focus uh, in your work on Black women and girls, mm-hmm. and often the conversation about policing and state terror is is held through a male lens, uh, mm-hmm. right? Up, it was it wasn't until two thousand fifteen really that it sort of exploded onto the scene, right? That that Black women and girls are also uh, regularly uh, victims of state mm-hmm. terror. Can, can you talk about the the relationship then to now between law enforcement and and black female bodies?
1: I think that when we look at the experiences with black women in the police, we see that intersection of both um, the vulnerability that black women have to police violence when they are held, when they are contained, when they are detained. Uh, by the police uh, and, and 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 brutalized when they are living in contexts where they have to, uh, believe they have to call on the police, uh, and then they are exploited by the police. and And we've seen cases of this. We've seen cases of sexual abuse of black women um, by the police. Uh, and 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 that is often left left out of the conversation. So part of the work is to remind people that we have known the violence and brutality of policing. Just by listening to the testimony uh, and the experiences uh, of black women uh, and girls. Uh, and it's also the case that there's a, a vulnerability, that relationship highlights the vulnerability of black women and girls to other forms of, of, of violence, which is also gendered and, 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 and uh, patriarchal violence that they experience, right? Uh, and so one so one of the, my entry points into this conversation. Um, you know, 20 years ago is, is through the, the, the eyes of, of Black feminist thinkers and writers who are, one, saying, come, and, and, and some of these folks coming out of the anti-violence uh, against women's movement, including people like Beth Ritchie, who are saying, you know, to the uh, second wave of, of, of uh, white feminists, you want to criminalize violence against women. That is not going to help me, <laughs> right? Calling the police into my, uh, my um, experience when the police are already uh, not positioned to help me, not willing to help me stand ready to be abusers, is not going to help me manage the abuse in my relationship. It actually may compound it. Uh, and one of the things that we saw from research on, for example, things like mandatory arrest policies, is that uh, for poor Black women, it did compound uh, the violence that they experienced. So they were more likely to report victimization after an arrest of an abuser uh, than before. And so you see the, the, these contradictions that um, exist when it comes to um, the experiences of Black women, both confronting police violence, right, and the violence that they, they, they face. And so what, what I have appreciated about doing this work and, and, and being in this conversation is being able, when we think about intersectionality, being able from the perspective of Black women who've shared their experiences with violence, with me, interpersonal violence, uh, intimate violence, uh, violence uh, at the the hands of of the police is illustrating the complex ways in which we are impacted by violence and that there are no quick fixes to that, right? Uh, It is not about training. Um, Although there is harm reduction that can happen, it is about getting to the root, going back to the Kumbahi River Collective statement, getting to the root of the systems of oppression that make Black women, queer Black women, uh, more vulnerable to violence in all its forms. There's not just one form of violence we need to be buffered from, Right. Uh, you can't yeah. talk about police violence without talking about other forms of violence that we can confront. And of course, this is why folks say, right, that if you can liberate and free Black women, then we would all be more free.
0: Right. The first question uh, from the families that I work with every time is, when's it going to stop? How do we make it stop? My response is... We've got to dismantle the whole thing that is a process that you know we we are in the midst of i mean we're seeing civil civilization uh of of uh certain law enforcement jobs but this this is a, this is to use a phrase that you did earlier a very slow burn in our mm-hmm. last few minutes, Professor Jones talk about what we need to be doing now and what the pathway to, the pathway to abolition. I know it's a big question. I know, but from mm-hmm. from where you sit, how mm-hmm. what are the steps that we need to be taking?
1: Yeah, you know, so so, you know, first I think of this as a as a long struggle, uh, and that we are all doing our part to move us further down that that path. And it's a path that began long before us. It's a path that uh, began before emancipation, uh, after emancipation. Uh, you know, and and it's a path that will continue. And so that for me helps me to think about how to hold uh, this work and what I expect uh, as an outcome. I think that this problem can seem overwhelming. Uh, and it is overwhelming. And, and when that's compounded by grief, uh, I can, you know, totally uh, appreciate why people, you know, want that immediacy of, of a solution of an outcome. Uh, and yeah. it is something that is created each moment. Right. So, in in your relationship to impacted families, that is part of what will help it to stop, right? We'll address the harm and the trauma that's being done. This is very local, in my perspective, very local and very relational. Uh, So, the work that has been being done at any community, both to hold the police accountable for the violence that they do, uh, and at the same time to invest and experiment. In in, in in alternatives and so projects like mental health first which began and you can correct me if I'm wrong before summer 2020 are the kinds yep. of proje- right are the kinds of projects and experimentations that you don't you know people don't need permission from anyone right to to um, create people do it right because you are you are you are called to do it and you see a need for an alternative and so, when people ask me, like, do I have hope? Do I have faith? I have, what, I, what hope and faith I have is located in, in the work of the people that I see and I know who are trying in very local ways, right? To create uh, a, a, a places of, of care uh, and commitment uh, to try and address the harm in honest ways, uh, develop new systems of accountability and that exists. And you, you know that exists because you're involved in that work, right? Um, but I think it's a good reminder for people to know because people are so binary and will think, well, abolition failed. Abolition, <laughs> abolition didn't fail. <laughs> abolition has been a lot, around longer than we had. And it will be here that part. after we're gone, right? <laughs> abolition didn't fail. Um, but people think in really binary ways and they don't understand it's, it's happening all around us, right? That is how we are still here, right? This work that is done. Uh, And we're we're part of of that current in this moment. And there will be you know others who come behind us and push us even further.
0: That is a beautiful note to end an amazing conversation. Professor Nikki Jones, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kat.
1: I I love being in conversation with you. Same,
0: same. Professor Nikki Jones is the professor of African-American studies at UC Berkeley. Her work examines the experiences of Black women, men, and youth with the criminal legal system, policing, and violence. Her research is focused on the system systematic analysis of video records that document routine encounters between police and civilians, with a focus on encounters that involve the police of Black youth in high-surveillance neighborhoods. Professor Jones is the author of Between Good and Ghetto, African-American Girls and Inner City Violence, and The Chosen Ones, Black Men and the Politics of Redemption. <laughs> You've been listening to Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law & Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fortnite 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D I S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at Law and Disorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA, that's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area.